When it comes to questions of historical inquiry, post-colonial activists are less concerned with empirical historical evidence. They will say that it's the lived experience that matters. So it doesn't matter what the record says. It's how did people feel about it? How do how did they respond to it? And today, how do we feel about it? Because of the importance of lived experience, it's very difficult to argue against that because I would say to you, well, you can't challenge me because this is what I've experienced. This is what I know and, and that's who I am. So thank you very much. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro, and with me is the colonial pig man, uh, Ricky Orpike. Uh, who have you aggressed today, Ricky? Come on, be honest. Um, oh, well, just my whole existence is an aggression, is it not? Yes. Too right. I can probably trace you back to <laughs> Captain Cook himself, uh, you know, and the rest of them. But uh, today we will be talking about post-colonial theory with Peter Curdy, so th- that can be your penance. Okay, I'll do it. Peter Curti is Director of the Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society Program at the Centre for Independent Studies. He is also Adjunct Associate Professor in the School of Law at the University of Notre Dame, Australia, and Adjunct Research Fellow at the Australian Centre for Christianity and Culture at Charles Sturt University. He's written for The Australian, The Epoch Times, Quadrant, The Courier Mail and The Spectator. He's also the author of The Tyranny of Tolerance, Threats to Religious Liberty in Australia, Euthanasia, Putting the Culture to Death, and Sacred and Profane Faith and Belief in Secular Society. He's an ordained minister in the Anglican Church of Australia. He's joining us today to discuss, among other things, his analysis paper for uh, the Centre for Independent Studies, Raging Against the Past, Guilt, Justice, and the Post-Colonial Reformation. Peter, welcome to The New Flesh. Thank you, Ricky and John. Great to be with you. So, Peter, when you moved here in 1994, were you shocked to find out that Australia is a patriarchal hotbed of white supremacy? <laughs> it, well, we lived in WA and um, for the first seven years that we were in Australia. Um, what struck me about Australia was that, in fact, it was a very easygoing society where um, there were so many different people from different parts of the world or descended from different parts of the world who all seem to get along really comfortably together, everyone enjoying their own cultural variations, their own religious affiliation, but bound by a common commitment to uh, the Australia is a free and open country with a, a fantastic climate and a great way of life. Um, and I think that although the, the views, the negative views about Australia are were then propounded and still are propounded. I think the fact that people still want to come here from so many different parts of the world, often trying to escape tyrannies themselves, would suggest that Australia is actually a great country and not an oppressive um, and, uh, and, and intolerant country. Well, I'm, I'm fascinated. Both John and I, we, uh, we originally come from, from Perth, WA. Uh, what attracted you to the West all those years ago? I was recruited. I was appointed to a position at the Cathedral, St. George's Anglican Cathedral in Perth, by the dean whom I'd known in England. And that's how we came to be in Perth. Ah, fantastic. And yeah, is this uh, where you, you taught at Notre Dame? No, the, the, uh, the Notre Dame appointment is an adjunct appointment, an honorary appointment. Uh, I was made here in Sydney, uh, and it was because Notre Dame was supportive of my work in the sense of being appreciative of what I was doing and was keen to have an association with me. I don't have any teaching responsibilities. I don't get a car parking space, uh, but I do have, <laughs> I do have access to their 
to their terrific online library. Um, and it, it just cements a relationship between Notre Dame and CIS, which is informal, uh, but, it, but, it, but it, it helps to, I think, forge the kind of relationships between groups of people who take a similar stand on various kinds of issues confronting us in, this, as in society. For example, euthanasia. Well, I think we should get into the, the meat of it. I will just say that my wife attended Notre Dame and she was, she was not a good student, Peter. So uh, if you did teach there, she probably would have wagged your class. Uh, <laughs> so in your paper, you say, and this is quote, as things stand today, secular liberal societies are poised to fall before the reforming fundamentalism of post-colonial theory. The danger is real post-colonial theory nurses ancient wounds, blaming reason for colonialism and replacing tolerance with cultural relativism, close quote. That's a scary trailer. Perhaps we need to start at the beginning. What on earth is post-colonial theory? Post-colonial theory is um, an intellectual movement that stems from what's known as critical theory, which is is in in itself a broader intellectual trend which takes a different approach to issues of knowledge and experience. Um, In the broadest sense, critical theory seeks to uh, rethink the way we understand the idea of knowledge, the way in which we understand uh, the structures of power in society, and wants to supplant the, the, the ways that would be familiar perhaps to, to, to you and me and to those of, uh, of your listeners who are familiar with that, with a different way that upends convention, that upends conventional ways of thinking about things. So within that, post-colonial theory is a particular response to, uh, broadly speaking, the end of empire. It dates back to the end of the Second World War. After the Second World War, uh, empires like the British Empire started to come apart and the powers the former colonial powers relinquished their their overseas possessions and their overseas territories uh, in australia we we gained independence of course at federation um, and australia remains a part of the commonwealth so the queen of england the monarch is the queen of australia and the constitutional monarchy here is remains intact at least for the time being but australia was part of that experience of empire and so post-colonialism is something that touches on uh, on australian life as well so what is post-colonialism it's a sense a reaction to the exercise of power by a uh, by a former colonial power and what it seeks to do is shake off the what seemed to be the oppression that was brought about by colonialism and to shake off any structures associated with that oppression and put in place uh, different structures, put in place a different way of of thinking about history, a different way of thinking about the way uh, we, we, we exercise power, thinking of, in many ways about the importance of experience rather than in some ways, the the, the the factual account of history. So it's what what was my, how did I, how do how does how do we respond? How do we feel? How do we experience the situation? That takes priority um, over uh, over the more empirical forms of historical study. So that's a, a, a kind of a a, a, a detailed 
and um, a slightly esoteric way of explaining colonialism, but what post-colonialism, but it's a, it's a response to the collapse of colonialism after the Second World War, the decline of empire. And it seeks to dismantle any kind of legacy of, of, of empire, whether it's in education, whether it's in government, whether it's in social structures. Well, uh, I'm interested in, in, in the evidence here. So, so what kind of evidence do, do post-colonial or critical scholars typically use to justify their claims? Because you just mentioned there that, that it's more about someone's own experience or, or reality of colonialism. I mean, no one's alive today that, uh, that remembers or, or was here when, when Captain Cook landed you know, on our shores of Australia. Well, that's a very important point. And one of the, there are two things that post-colonial theory holds out. One is that there is a burden of guilt for what happened in the past that can never be discharged. And the second idea that it holds out is that there is a standard of justice that must always be attained. It's never going to be attained, but we must always strive to attain it. And so the, we bear guilt for what happened in the past. And in, because of that guilt, we have to strive for justice to redeem that guilt. And that extends that can extend a long way back. It, certainly, um, Australians are, are deemed, today's Australians are deemed to bear responsibility, to be guilty still for the actions of Captain Cook. Uh, and, and that guilt has to be addressed. In the United Kingdom, anyone associated with slavery in the 17th or 18th century, um, or, or rather the, the, the descendants or anyone associated with, with people who were involved with slavery at that time, are deemed today to be responsible. And so it's important to shed the legacy of slavery. The, the Irish potato famine occurred in the 19th century. People, Prime Minister Tony Blair, when he was the British Prime Minister, apologised for, for, for that event. But you're right, nobody, is, nobody today is alive who was responsible for those events or, or was involved in any way with perpetrating those events. And, but nonetheless, post-colonial theory holds that that burden of guilt can never be discharged. We're, all, we're tainted with it and it's permanent and ineradicable. Do, do we have a slightly different case here in Australia seeing as, as so many of our uh, sort of earliest immigrants were uh, were convicts or were part of the British uh, army in, in some way, but but one could argue was sort of, you know, not, not willing participants, so, so to speak. You know, I mean, a lot of them came over here um, sort of not 100% willing. Uh, also, we have a, a quite a large immigrant population as well. So, you know, we're not, we're not all related to, to Captain Cook. So, I mean, is there a slightly different case here in Australia? Well, Australia is, a, is an interesting case. Uh, it's important to remember what Australia does have in common with other colonised countries, that it was settled by a colonial power that arrived on these shores and brought a, a, a system of government and a rule of law, um, and it brought a, a, a pattern of religious observance with the, the Church of England in Australia was the, was the prevalent form of religious observance here. So ways of life were imposed on this country. Yes, it's true that convicts were brought here uh, against their will, although I, I imagine that if, you, if the alternative to coming to Australia was being hanged in, in the UK, you might think that coming to Australia was actually a better thing to do. But of course, we know that people who came in the first fleet, the convicts who came in the first fleet, 
uh, are very proud of that, um, and or, or rather the descendants of those conflicts are very proud of that to this day and regard that as being, I mean, I think First Fleet is a sort of an aristocracy in Australian society, but they were here because a colonizing power decided to come and displace indigenous people. So Australia is caught up in this because no matter what kind of society we forged today, and no matter the kind of prosperity that we enjoy and the freedom that we enjoy, that legacy of colonialism is still seen to be playing out and it's it's expressed most commonly in this idea that the the treatment of the mistreatment of indigenous people by the first arrivals uh, which in, is in itself and i'm not a historian but it, we just got to say that it is a contested area of history um, because bad things happened but some good things happened as well uh, but the the impact of that settlement is something that we, or invasion, as some would say, is something that we're still working through today. So Australia is different in the sense that there wasn't, it, it wasn't like um, a country where s slaves were brought. It wasn't a country where the institution of slavery was ever part of the fabric of society. It certainly was tough and, 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 and very cruel and inhumane in many ways. But Australia bears the legacy of the arrival of a colonial power. And to that extent, Australia is no different from other countries that had experienced that. Because the British came, the English came, they settled the country, and they displaced others in the course of doing that. At the heart of this is the claim that colonisation is intrinsically bad. That, that that has to be at the heart of this. And, you know, you've already sort of touched on it, but is this unique to the West? And, I mean, how far back... Does the trans transgression go? Like, how there has to be a a point at which the post-colonial theorists, you know, because I think if you said just to take it to the extreme, if you were like, well, let's start primordial ooze, let's start like way back then, they would say that's ridiculous. So they've that that would mean they've all, they've obviously got a starting point in mind, correct? Well, the first part to your question is that yes, it is actually a Western phenomenon, really. Um, one of the great propounders of uh, colonial uh, of post-colonial theory was the, uh, the the Palestinian scholar Edward Said, who, who spent most of his working life in the United States at Columbia and was a significant contributor to this intellectual movement through his book. Uh, well, the, the main book was Orientalism, but through other books as well. Um, although Said came from was born in Egypt and was raised as a Palestinian uh, or identified as a Palestinian. Nonetheless, the, his ideas were worked out in the United States, and it also draws on ideas that were propounded in uh, in, in in Europe, in France, so and, and in Germany as well. So the it is a Western phenomenon. I haven't heard any Chinese scholars talking about this. Or, no, uh, no, it's not something that comes up in uh, the CCP's China, or you know, it seems to be something that, like, I don't think. Um, they're suffering the same kind of uh, um, hand-wringing. Correct. That, that is correct. I think it's a Western phenomenon. Um, and I think one of the reasons that we might get to this, <clears throat> one of the reasons why I think post-colonial theory is so, uh, is so dangerous is that it actually poses a threat to, to the fabric of Western, <clears throat> Western civilization and Western norms and, and values. But if I just come back to the second part of your question, how far does it go back? It goes back as far as the activists want it to go back. So Christopher Columbus's <clears throat> Christopher Columbus's arrival in in the New World in 1492 
is uh, is deemed to be an act an early act of of colonialism and then the the actions of the spanish in central and southern america deemed to be acts of colonialism so the harms perpetrated uh, and the the impact of those early arrivals are events that we still feel the need to apologize for but why do they stop there though i'm fascinated by this if we just what well, you just go in a discussion uh, i haven't had a lot of discussion with uh post-colonial theorists but <laughs> i would be fascinated to say well let's go back like well let's go keep going further back can we can we go back to can we make it biblical can we go back that far or is that too far before that even well i wonder why the anti-slavery activists do on the whole seem to stop with the the emergence of the slave trade as we as we know it in the um, in the 16th and 17th centuries because slavery was uh, a very well established part of, of the ancient world and even in the new testament st paul you never hear st paul in his letters to the christian churches calling for the abolition of slavery paul recognizes that slavery is part of the fabric of society it's a social and legal and financial institution and when Paul talks about slavery, he doesn't condemn it. He urges slaves to behave and to conduct themselves in a certain kind of way and wants slave owners to conduct themselves in a certain kind of way, particularly when the slave owner and the slaves are Christians themselves. So we don't hear Paul, St. Paul, calling for, for reform. The problem is that slavery is an institution has gone uh, in the Western world. There is no country uh, in, in, there's no democratic country where slavery is an established political, social or financial institution. But we know there probably, the, the UN estimates that there are 40 million people held in slavery in the world today. There certainly are people held in slave-like conditions in Britain and in Australia, but that's thoroughly illegal. Uh, but we don't hear the activists calling attention to that. And I don't, and I think that that discrepancy is troubling because it's much easier to tackle, to attack the past and to tear down figures associated with slavery in the past. It's much harder to address it today. And one of the reasons I think it's hard to address it today is that the, the, the countries where slavery is still practiced, and I use practiced in that kind of social sense, um, are countries that the post-colonial activists would regard today as being victims of Western colonialism in the first place. So because they are the victims, they can't be really held responsible for things that they, they're doing today. But we want to find the perpetrators, the real perpetrators, who, of course, the, 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 the Western powers... Um, from another era. Does does cultural relativism play a part here? Because I mean, a lot of activists might you know look at those other cultures and go, well, that's that's their culture. Who are we to say you know otherwise? Who who are we to tell them to to change? You know, yeah, that's a good question. I cultural relativism does come into this, uh, and in in a particularly important way because when it comes to questions of historical inquiry, postcolonial. Post-colonial activists are less concerned with empirical historical evidence. They will say that it's the lived experience that matters. So it doesn't matter what the record says. It's how did people feel about it? How, do, how did they respond to it? And today, how do we feel about it? Um, and because of the importance of lived experience, it's very difficult to argue against that because I would say to you, well, you can't challenge me because this is what I've experienced. This is what I know. And, and that's who I am. So thank you very much. Whereas I think... They're never that polite, Peter. They're not, they, they don't give you that thank you. That's you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, I'm assuming politeness for the sake of for the okay, sake right, of the right. conversation. Fair enough. But 
but they so for example um a good example would be um campaigns against anyone associated with the slave trade in the united kingdom and there was an obscure character um who's just been the subject of a legal decision in england associated with jesus college chap called tobias rustat tobias rustat made a lot of money in his time he was a 17th century english figure made a lot of money he had interests in slave he wasn't a slave owner himself but he had interests in slave in slave trading companies um and made nonetheless made a very substantial bequest to jesus college cambridge and his bequest has caught, conferred down the generations a great benefit to students at jesus college cambridge I think that the money that he made and gave to Jesus College Cambridge was made before his involvement in the slave trade that doesn't seem to matter to the activists and there was a concerted attempt to have a bust of a statue or a memorial to Rustat removed from the college chapel uh, because it was deemed to endorse and condone slavery that was actually a decision the, the attempt to do that failed but in Bristol in the United Kingdom uh, the figure of the statue of Edward Colston who had also been involved with the slave trade and had made a lot of money and been a significant philanthropist and benefactor of the city of of of, of Bristol was torn down um and the in fact the jury acquitted the four people who the so-called Colston four who did pull the statue down and and were tried for that the jury acquitted them so they walked free so the these are actions that happened a long time ago the people may have made money in a perfectly legal and perfectly legitimate way but perhaps like somebody today making money out of tobacco it wasn't illegal it was part of the economic and political fabric of the day it, but their their legacy no matter what they did with their money no matter the good that they conferred their conferred their legacy is tainted and they are forever damned and therefore they must be eradicated and statues torn down regardless of what the historical record says so it's not just cultural relativism to come back to your question but also an emotional response we feel bad about something we feel pain we feel enraged and therefore something must be done a statue must be torn down a, a, a memorial must be removed uh, any legacy must be must be eradicated in pursuit of justice Well this term uh lived experience sort of interests me because we used to call it anecdotal evidence you know and that's that's a a far less i guess fluffy term do, do you think we need to bring that term back when we're describing this sort of this sort of behavior Well I think we just continue to use the term anecdotal evidence I don't think we need to we should never surrender it and i don't know that we need to bring it back we just people who want to resist the impact of of post colonial theory need to use the term anecdotal evidence and and use the phrase to put in context all the material that is being presented to us as uh, uh, as as definitive and resolving res- evidence is it isn't it fair to say that this term lived experience is being used as a kind of harry potter spell and in some cases for rather cynical reasons so rather than just say yeah anecdotal experience or my experience or shared experience or whatever i've only ever heard people use the bracketed term or the italic term <laughs> lived experience for a certain to achieve an end i've never heard it used in a charitable way for instance no it's used in a way that is meant to counter any possible objection because if you if if the if lived experience takes primacy then it can never be countered you can never you can never bring evidence to bear against claims that are based on lived experience 
Uh, and to that extent, I think it's a bit different from anecdotal evidence because um, anecdotal evidence just may or may not involve something that I have done. It could involve uh, hearsay, for example. But I think there is an association. But lived experience is is a phrase that sort of comes from the heart and makes a claim to authenticity that can't be countered. Because if you do attempt to counter my claims of lived experience, you're somehow countering me, you're denouncing me, and, and you're, you're denying my own integrity. And that's why I think it's so difficult to counter. Isn't putting emotions in the driver's seat like this dangerous and uh, ill-advised? It's very dangerous, which is why I'm so concerned about the impact of um, of post-colonial theory, which is making itself felt in Australia to this day. Um, I think it's very dangerous. Uh, one of the most recent ways in which we're seeing it now, there's a new Labour government here, and within days of the government being um, being elected and being sworn into office, there was talk again about um, enshrining, following the 2017 Uluru Statement, and enshrining a voice to Parliament, an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Now, the idea behind the Indigenous voice to Parliament is that it gives Indigenous people, who were, of course, displaced by the colonial settlers in the, in the, the 18th century, it gives them a, a voice, it gives them a platform, it allows them to be heard and somehow recognises their experience. And not only do we want to give them a voice to Parliament, we want to enshrine that in the Constitution, in, in the legal document that established the founding of the Commonwealth, and which is really just um, a, a, a rule book, if you like, for how government is conducted. But when, look, at, look at contemporary Australia. Um, 3% of uh, the uh, Indigenous Australians in, uh, uh, comprise roughly 3% of, uh, of the population. We now have 10 Indigenous members of Parliament, which is a magnificent achievement, um, and both on the left and the right and in the centre. We have 10 Indigenous people in Parliament. And you'd think that this was the best possible voice that we could have. This is the best way in which a voice can be expressed, that we have people who are the, we have indigenous people who are elected by the people of Australia to represent them, to represent them in the Australian Parliament? But it's somehow this is ne- not enough. This is what the point about justice: guilt can never be eradicated, justice can never be attained. This can never be enough because there needs to be more. There needs to be a symbolic gesture. It's not enough simply that in the in today's Parliament we have a, 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 a marvelous level of representation. There have to be that. There has to be the symbolic. Uh, gesture as well. And I think the why this is so dangerous is because, well, I mean, uh, uh, we're not necessarily talking about the voice, well, I, I have issues with the voice, but why I think the point about this is so, is so worrying is that it represents a threat to established norms and to the, and to the, to the established conduct of government and, and the rule of law in this country, and also to the way in which we understand the history of this nation, that Every, like any other country, Australia, bad things have happened in our past, for sure. Bad things have happened. And the responsibility that you and I and everyone in this country now bears is to ensure that these things don't happen again. And that we do attain, uh, we, we ensure that justice is upheld. We ensure that the rule of law is upheld. And we ensure that parliamentary democracy uh, it, it functions effectively and efficiently. Post-colonial theory would say this is all a stain. This must always be addressed and acknowledged and all, must always be 
if not dismantled, at least challenged. So, Peter, we've spoken to Anthony Dillon and uh, Warren Mundine about, uh, you know, uh, the, the voice, and obviously we're we're uh, still processing a lot of that. But but I just noticed in what you said that there was uh, just if we we won't follow the, down this track too much, but you can see the rhetorical trick uh, being being played with with the <laughs> you know, it's not called the 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 statement the Ulrich statement of the rational mind. It's of the heart, and uh, and I feel that this gets to the the key uh weaponizing of emotion and uh and lived experience and and um yeah as i say putting emotion in the in the driver's seat in order as a cudgel uh, uh to to shut down debate to it's in the same way that we were well in a similar way in which uh we've created the the anti-racism movement because if you say well i'm not an anti-racist and they go aha <laughs> you know so i feel that it, just in that little example you gave we, we've seen um just a tiny but maybe it might could be a long but does any of that resonate with you? Very much so, because there was a a column in um, the Australian newspaper a few days ago by one of the principal advocates for the the enshrinement of the voice, Mark Liebler, distinguished lawyer. And uh, Mark Liebler wrote in his column saying to say that those who objected to the voice could could be doing so on only one of two grounds, or maybe two, maybe both. One was ideological, which I think is a sort of veiled way of saying you must be a, a bigoted racist. <laughs> and the other was to say it, it was ignorance, that you don't know what you're talking about. It could be both, of course. You could be an ignorant, uh, bigoted racist. If I had to pick, I'd, I'd definitely pick the second one. If, if I've only got two choices, because I think that one doesn't, <laughs> yeah. that one sounds, the first one I think comes with a lot of blowback. Well, whatever. <laughs> However, it, whatever the grounds one has for objecting, I think for these to be... Uh, for these to be dismissed as either being a symptom of ideological blindness or ignorance is is really quite wrong, and it's a way of shutting down debate. And I'm I think you know people like Anthony and Warren, who you mentioned, and Warren is director of our Indigenous program at the Centre for Independence Studies, are very um, eloquent um, uh, advocates for Indigenous rights in this country. But the rights they want, they're speaking about are the rights that come with uh, with prosperity that flows from having a job, from having an education, from living in a safe environment that is free from crime. And Anthony and Warren and my former colleague, Jacinta Price, who's just been elected to the Senate from representing the country party in uh, in, in uh, in the, in the Northern Territory, uh, has been a very, very courageous campaigner over a long period of time. And Jacinta Price has talked about, or Senator Price, as I should now refer to her, uh, has uh, I've heard her talk about the reaction that she gets from other Indigenous people when she talks against, she speaks against the, the fashionable m- movements of, of the day. So I'm very pleased that, to, that, that we have such eloquent and informed and courageous advocates as Warren and Jacinta and Anthony. Um, and I, but I think that, Mike, what concerns me, and I see this emerging now in late May, early June, is that those who raise an objection to this proposed change to the constitution will be dismissed as racist because it's deemed to counter the lived experience of those who yearn for recognition, who yearn for acknowledgement, who yearn to be heard. What kind of world are we living in where we're going to divide Australia by race? This is surely in itself a regressive and racist move, but that's 
a, a difficult thing to, to say, and it's certainly not something that's widely accepted. Well, let's let's perhaps leave uh, Indigenous is- issues there for the moment and, and talk about some, uh, I guess, the nuts and bolts of decolonising. Uh, what does it mean to decolonise and, and what sort of things are being decolonised? The post-colonial movement is really being propounded through educational institutions, through schools and universities. And then the people who are, and that's where it started, it started in the, in the halls of academe. A generation is then educated, they go out into the workforce and they take those ideas with them and they transmit them. We hear a lot about decolonizing the curriculum, for example. Um, what might that mean in Australia? It might mean playing down the significance of um, the English legacy, by which I mean the rule of law, the, form of the model of constitutional government, the, the norms and standards of, a Western society, of the Western society that prevail here. Decolonizing the curriculum would mean perhaps, if not ignoring, that certainly paying less attention to, to those issues and promoting others in their place. Um, it could take any one of a number of forms. It could be, and some of them are quite legitimate. For example, to if we're, spe- if we're teaching children about religion in schools, we should be teaching children about indigenous spirituality and, and, and the indigenous worldview. Yes, of course, we should be teaching that. But we should be teaching these subjects alongside one another and not displacing, displacing one uh, with another. Decolonizing often means displacing elements from the curriculum, which are deemed to be redolent of oppression and uh, and racism and the exercise of power the vulnerable and i think that the that decolonizing the curriculum should not be about displacing elements but teaching elements alongside each other we we are after all in australia a very successful and vibrant multicultural society to suggest that the curriculum has got elements in that need to be removed in order to uh, to correct an injustice i think does an injustice in itself to the cohesiveness of our society, where we are a community of society people from different backgrounds who, who, who live, work and learn alongside each other. So the curriculum is one way in which it's being decolonized. I think sometimes the, the way in which law is administered is also there's an attempt to decolonize the administration of law because it's easy to dismiss it as being just the imposition of, uh, of an imperial form of law that is to say the English common law, and an appeal might be made to other forms of law, to other legal norms. And that, I think, is, is also dangerous because I think it subverts the, the, the principles and foundations of our society. So those are the examples of, of decolonization. But it happens mainly through the educational institutions of our country. So is there any push at all? To, I want to just test the, the, the boundaries of this because if we were really to decolonize, I know it's happening mostly in education, but... The, is there any push to decolonize medicine, for example? Like, you know, do, do we need to remove technology and vaccines created under a tyrannous regime? Or, uh, you know, uh, I mean, what, how, how much of the, or of, the, of the benefits of Western colonial society are to remain in a decolonized world? Well, that's an interesting question. I think that there are ways in which the assumptions that are made by Western medicine are challenged. But the human body is the human body. And when it goes wrong, there are effective ways of treating it and they're ineffective and sometimes dangerous ways of treating it. So I'm not sure that medicine as, as such is something that could be decolonized, could be decolonized 
especially since many people from around the world work as practitioners and many different countries work as medical practitioners around the world, including in Australia. But I think that that the views about what what we mean by the concept of health, for example, um, what we mean by the concept of mental and physical bodily integrity could be subject to uh, decolonizing attacks because we might, it's not so much the claims that are made, but that the Western assumptions that undergird those claims. Well, uh, we've got a little thought experiment uh, here. Uh, What do you think the world would look like if the post-colonial critics got their way? Because uh, I'm interested in seeing, uh, say, a computer model of the society they want to live in. You know, does it involve iPhones, Netflix, good coffee, and book deals? You know, how how revolutionary really are these people? You know, would these people lean out and and give their place, their job, their possessions to the people they're trying to save? One of the reasons I think post-colonial activists focus so much on the past and the supposed injustices perpetrated in the past rather than considering the injustices being perpetrated today, like that illegal slavery we talked about, is that actually it's a lot easier to criticise the past than to criticise the present. And who really wants to put aside their morning cup of coffee? Who really wants to lay aside their iPhone? Who really uh, wants to disengage themselves from the, 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 the technologically enmeshed world in which we live? Nobody. We depend upon that technology. And we've, I mean, that is probably going to bring its own pressures and problems to bear for uh, generations of succeeding generations of children. But I don't think that that is something that we would want to question. So there are moves, of course, to challenge the economic circumstances in which westernized products are produced in, in other countries like China or Pakistan or the Indian, parts of the Indian subcontinent. But do we really want to do without our fashionable wear? Do we want to do without our phones? No, I don't think so. So what would the world look like? I think it would look pretty, I don't think it would be very different from the world in which we're living now. We would just, we would just talk about, uh, we would talk about injustice and we would talk about the guilt that we bear but we do that while while flipping over our phones and. Peter, to be honest though, let's face it. It's I've always said this. It, it would look exactly as it is now. But the but the critics who are who are the post colonial critics or the critical theory, they would be the manager, or they would have the book deal, or they would be like it's a redistributive uh, mechanism created by comfortable inner city elites. Or is this a or is this a long bow to draw? No, I think that's true. I think that, and we we see that something of that world uh, emerging now that I think that um, that white middle-aged men like me, for example, um, carry, not that I should carry any, any authoritative voice, but people of my generation uh, and, and my, my background would carry uh, less weight in conversations about society than a non-white woman or somebody from another back, from a, from a from a different ethnic and cultural background i think we're seeing that already in 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 publishing i think we're seeing it in the media um i think that it, it it's it's diversity is good and it's great that that we see a, a greater variety of faces on our tv screens and in in the movies than we did when i was growing up um but it mustn't become an exercise of power. It needs to be a reflection of the kind of society in which we live. 
Whereas I think you're right that we, I mean, I think we're, and we're seeing that, uh, in fact, power is being, <laughs> is being wielded and that it's being transferred from one demographic group to another. Is that a good thing? Well, it, a correction is probably never a bad thing. But I think if it simply displaces, or rather, if re it replaces one kind of um, oppression with another, that's not a good thing. And that doesn't really get us very far at all. Yeah, well, I I understand scholars and, and and academics cloistering themselves up in the womb of the university and 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 waxing about these trendy extremist ideas over coffee and cake. But but it's the administrators, the managers, and the bureaucrats who seem to be the ones green lighting initiatives and enabling those sort of loose cannons. Is this moral cowardice? You know, I mean, how how aware of this intellectual movement are the enablers? Well, I think that. On the whole, they're very aware of what they're doing. Uh, I have to say in Australia, we are not nearly in the same predicament that universities in the United States are, and even in the United Kingdom. Um, I've and I think one of the reasons I wrote the report is because I feel Australia has got, we've got a long way to go before it's as bad as it is in other places. And in a way, it was I wrote it as a warning that we need to attend to these uh, to these matters and pay attention to what is happening so that we don't end up in, in the situation that other countries have ended up in. United States, in the United States, for example, um, university uh, professors lose their jobs. A chap called Joshua Katz was recently fired by Princeton, not because of something that he did, but he dissented. Well, not, not because of something that he said as such, but he dissented um, from a letter that was written, as I understand the story, that was written by a large number of faculty taking a position on uh, on a matter to do with race or diversity. And Katz simply dissented. He raised an, uh, an opposing voice. You'd think that a university is a place where opposing voices could be raised as part of con as a contribution to the, the wider process of intellectual inquiry. Katz lost his job at Princeton because of what he did. And, there, and, and this was done in the name of defending free speech, it has to be said. So I think the, the, the managers know what they're doing and they have, uh, they have a, a desire to uphold diversity. They are committed to a particular form of diversity and they know that anything that, dis, that dissents, any kind of dissent from that diversity or anyone who demurs from that will pay the penalty for that. And they know what they're doing. Well, before we go into some, some bigger philosophical ideas, just onto some of these specifics, statues. Now, during uh, COVID, we had statues being graffitied. You know, obviously, it was more, everything was more pronounced in America than being torn down and whatnot. In the UK, we mentioned that you mentioned the, uh, the Colston Four tearing, uh, throwing a statue into the drink. So uh, what, what's, the, what's going on with statues? Do, do, start, do some statues need to come down? Uh, and um, what, 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 what's, the, what's the story here? On the whole, I'm in favour of keeping statues because they are a reminder of what of the figures who were considered important in the course of our country's history or any country's history. I don't think statues of Cook should be torn down. Cook was a man of his age. We, we may not approve of things that Cook did, um, but no human being can be identified simply in terms of one set of actions that they did. Cook was a man of his age. I think 
statues of Lachlan Macquarie, for example, a governor appointed by the British Crown. He was a man of his age. And statues to these people in this country are a reminder of of our history. They're a reminder of where we've come from. And they're a reminder of how we came to be the society that we are today. However, I think there are circumstances which statues do need to come down. And this particularly concerns the overturning of oppressive regimes. When the fall of communism, we see we saw statues or when when communism ended in 1989, we saw statues to Karl Marx, statues of Karl Marx, of Lenin and Stalin being torn down. When Saddam Hussein was overthrown uh, in in Iraq, we saw statues of Saddam being torn down. I don't doubt that if the North Korean people ever rise up and overturn the Kim regime, uh, the statues of the Kim leaders will be will be torn down. Those are significant. Those are significant issues, and they and they are significant events. Or in, in the case of North Korea, it would be a significant event because it represents the overthrowing of of a tyranny and the shaking off of a form of government. And I think you couldn't have had the Soviet Union dismantled and the communism come to an end. I mean, we're, we're living in a different, slightly different world now, but back then, I don't think you could have had that, those things happen and yet still retain statues of Lenin or statues of, of Stalin. Similarly, there are no statues to Hitler. There are no statues of Goering in Germany, and nor should there be. And I think if anyone tried to put a statue up, it would be, it would be a very bad thing, and it's not something that I would support. But those are because, that's because these statues represent figures who were overturned and overthrown. And I think that in that sense, having a representation of them is, is, is damaging. It's harmful because it's a misrepresentation of the history of our country or, or, or the country in which those statues uh, stand, were to stand. And it would be a misrepresentation for them to, to remain standing. In this country, I think this figure, or in, in Britain, for example, we, we can't just judge historical figures by one kind of association they may or may not have had and tear down their statues accordingly. As I said earlier, people are more complex than that and more rounded. But when it comes to tyrants or people who have perpetrated great acts of evil against their people, then certainly they should not be commemorated and the statues, if there are any, should be removed. But interestingly, Peter, because I've heard you talk about this uh, a few times and and it's absolutely fascinating. These these examples that that you've given are from, you know, regimes that have been toppled. Essentially, those. I'm trying to get it straight in my head. Some of these places at the time these statues come down don't have governments. They have been... There's been a, an active war or an insurgency or something that has completely shifted. We're talking about in Australia or in the UK or in America, we're talking about um, you know a peaceful, un, un uh, uh, molested uh, government uh, of, of people going about their business, and then re- sort of groups of people uh, tearing down statues. I, I feel like these situations are, and, and look, I'm happy to be in the second situation. I don't want to be in the first one. But still, I feel like this is, this is um, they're a little different, don't you think? 
Yes, you're right. They are different. Um, your question was about whether I support the tearing down of statues. And the answer is no, with a qualified, with a qualification. And I was really talking about the qualification because there are some circumstances in which statues should be removed. But no, you're right. What happened, in my view, in the United Kingdom, what happened here in Australia um, when statues were, were defaced was nothing less than vandalism. And I think vandalism as a form of criminal damage needs to be punished. I think that's completely inappropriate and, and, and wrong. And I think it was, um, we, need, we need to remember just the context that you're talking about, that we have, we have um, a peaceful, democratically elected governments in this country. And you, you can't, groups of people can't just take it upon themselves to deface public monuments and public, um, uh, and public memorials just because they, there's something there that they don't approve of. You're, so I agree with you. I think that's, that's the correct analysis. Well, in my dark moments, Peter, I want this movement to be wiped out completely, okay? Like I, it's, there's a movie, uh, Conan the Barbarian, and he says, you know, what is good in life? And he says... Uh, to crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of their women. You know, in my dark moments, I, I, I yearn for a bit of that. But Peter Bogosian talks about extending a golden bridge to your opponents, giving them an out in order to reach a solution. I think it comes from Sun Tzu. So, uh, what, what, how can we uh, extend a golden bridge to some of the people who aren't um, totally wild-eyed on on the side of the post-colonial uh, crowd? Well, I, I'm a golden bridge kind of person rather than a Conan barbarian kind of person <laughs> in my approach. Um, so, and I, so I think it is important to, to, to extend the golden bridge. How do we do that? I think we do it by talking about these issues and by raising concerns. And I'm keen that um, people who are concerned now, for example, about the voice that we spoke about earlier, should not be cowed by charges of um, ideological bigotry or ignorance from speaking out and expressing their concern. I think it's very important to put a different point of view and to withstand the kind of, I mean, this is not the easy bit, uh, has to be said, to, to withstand the kind of denunciation that may well follow. That's not easy. And that can be very hard. I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a very fortunate position because I'm not going to lose my job over things that I say in this conversation with you. But we know that there are people who could not speak publicly or would be frightened about speaking publicly because they would fear for their livelihoods. I think it's very important for people who can speak out to do so and to point out the errors of um, the errors that are made by the proponents of colonial theory, the colonial theory activists, as I call them. It's an intellectual movement. And like all intellectual movements, it will pass. It will have its day. We're, we're hearing conversations now about the about a post-liberal, uh, the rise of post-liberalism with the suggestion that liberalism as an intellectual movement from the Enlightenment is waning. It's had its day and something else is going to follow. This movement, too, will have its day. But it will leave a legacy that will be with us for a very long time. And I think it's important to sound warnings about what that legacy is likely to be if we do nothing. So the worst thing to do would be to do nothing and to hope that it would go away or just throw our hands up in despair um, and, and say, well, that's the way of the world. I think the Golden Bridge, even if people don't cross the Golden Bridge, the Golden Bridge can be extended by... But by having the, cons the sorts of conversation that we're having now, and by airing these issues, 
and by showing the inconsistencies that lie at the heart of post-colonial theory. Well, let's just talk about one of those inconsistencies, which is probably one of the biggest of all. So another quote from you here, quote, scepticism about the possibility of objective truth and insistence that knowledge is legitimized by forms of ling linguistic discourse give rise to a profound paradox lying at the heart of applied postmodernism. The paradox is that while asserting the objective truth of the of the proposition that knowledge is socially constructed, critical theory, upon which the critique offered by postcolonial theory is based, is unable to justify the that the assertion itself is itself objectively true. So you point out here a, a fundamental flaw uh, that the postmodernist claim that truth is subjective and that all things are relative and constructed. Isn't this kind of a circular firing squad situation in that they're sort of invalidating themselves? Well, I believe they are. I think it is a paradox. And nobody really wants to address that question. It is a paradox. Um, they, they make an objective claim about a subjective principle that is not capable of being verified. Uh, so I've, it is a paradox. But the question of truth and what is truth is bitterly contested. And we see this in particular in, in my view, in the transgender debate. And this is why I think transgenderism has become such a contested issue in our society, because it's not about whether or not, for example, trans women can compete in sorts. I mean, that is an issue. Uh, that, that's, that's a flow on issue. But what lies at the heart of it is that somebody, uh, an individual is making a statement about who they believe themselves to be. And that is a subjective claim which cannot be countered. It cannot be countermanded. It cannot be questioned. To do so is regarded as being transphobic. So the, we, uh, we are, why this is, this is such a critical issue, in my view, is that we come to the very heart of what is truth and what do we mean by truth? And what, does tr what, kind of, what way does truth operate in our society? If, I, if I, simply what I say about myself is true, uh, and it's an objectively truthful claim that must be honoured and recognised by everybody else, regardless of the kind of evidence or concerns that others may have. Then I think we're in a we're in a difficult situation, and I think I, I see I, I see this playing out uh, with the transgender debate, which of course is a very fraught, a very difficult debate, and it's a very emotionally challenging debate for for, for, for people. I understand that, but it's because truth. Uh, lies at the heart of this and what we mean, what we mean when we say we are making a truth a claim about truth. Um, and I think that the paradox of, um, uh, that lies at the heart of critical theory about the state of truth is one of its great weaknesses, but one that it's, that, that it's, proponents don't care to engage with. I love the existential shrug that they do. You could, you could say all of this to them and they just go, hmm, well... I guess they, they, they just completely do not acknowledge the, the Monty Python-esque silliness of, of their argument. <laughs> anyway, you don't have to answer that, Peter. That's just, that's just I'll leave that out there, hanging. We, 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 don't have a, we don't have enough time to get into the trans thing, but we do have a couple of questions left. Um, is is post-colonial theory not the greatest gift that the CCP ever received? Because they're, they're using our cultural war to their advantage, are they not? Well, that's a very interesting question. <clears throat> I suspect that I suspect that the Chinese government looks at the West and they think to themselves, it's just a matter of time. The, the United States is declining as a world power. It's withdrawing from involvement in areas of the world where it was involved um, until 
30 or 40 years ago uh, or even less. Um, and I think given that the Chinese government wants to be or was, sees China as being a, 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 not just an emerging, but a, 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 a world power, certainly one that will be a world power very soon, th- this, the, the, the sort of intellectual arguments that we're having in the West that weaken the, the social institutions and the intellectual life of the West will only, uh, will only assist them in the, in the Chinese and in, in the achievement of their long-term objective. I'm sure that they play the long game. They just have to wait and see and watch what happens and then we will do the work for them i think it's an important it's an int- i'm a slightly flippant answer to your question but it, i think your question is a really good one and i think it's an important one i think that we do um we are threatening the the integrity of intellectual social and cultural life in the west and there will be a price to pay for this and it will not be a it will not be the realization of some utopian ideal that's not going to happen mm. bleak um, so, uh, this movement seems so, so negative and, and unproductive, like ultimately it's based on destruction, not creation. Uh, you know, d- d- does it therefore have limited use? Like, uh, for, for the future that we're striving towards, like we need to think big to, to innovate and create, uh, you know, what, what can be done to convince these people that, that they're just wasting their time and ours? I think it's going to be very hard to convince people who are, convinced themselves of the rightness of their own position. I think we have to engage with people who may be wondering what this is all about and whether there is anything in it and, and whether there are any, there's anything here that they should be concerned about. Those are the people we should be trying to, we should be trying to reach. You're right. In my view, it is a very destructive movement. It proposes nothing concrete. It proposes no, it proposes no, as it were, set of institutions to replace that which it challenges. Um, we were talking earlier about guilt. Guilt can never be discharged. We're talking about justice. Justice can never be attained because it does propose, It does seek some kind of idealised standard, idealised principle that, that is simply never going to be attained. To that extent, it just tears down in the name of eradicating guilt and pursuing justice. And because it just tears down but puts nothing in its place, we will find that we are already finding that the the fabric of our society, the fabric of our culture is being torn. How far will they go? I think they will keep tearing for as long as they can keep tearing because the burden burden of guilt will never be discharged and justice will never be attained. But there's no model that's being presented, at least the communists, when Karl Marx had a vision for how society should be ordered. And like it or not, there was, there was an objective that Marx sought and believed could be attained and could be, could be realized. In my view, post-colonial theory seeks to tear down um, the existing models and the existing ways of life that we have, but there's nothing that it proposes to put in its place. So Peter, uh, I think perhaps we can get you to shift modes here for for you know just our pretty much our final question. What what would you say is a, is a Christian response to postmodernist ideas or critical theory? When it comes to Christianity and postcolonial theory, I think Christians will take different points of view on this, um, and there are some who are more sympathetic, and there are some who are not. But I think what Christianity teaches is that all human beings have fallen short of the glory of God. All human beings need to seek forgiveness and need to repair not just their relationship with God, but their relationships with other human beings. 
and to remember that God is the redeemer of the world and does not, um, and as such, we work towards the attainment of what Christians call the kingdom of God, that we don't dwell on how horrible the past was. We acknowledge and repent for what has happened in the past, but we look to the future with with a fervent hope for the realization of the kingdom of heaven here on earth and to the kingdom of God in, in, in an eternal sense. So Christianity is a forward-looking faith. Post-colonial theory, in my view, is a backward-looking ideological position that seeks simply to dwell on how bad we've been and how bad it's and how how much we have failed. Christianity doesn't deny the failure of human beings, but it does hold out a promise and a future to which Christians can aspire and to which we direct our hope. Mm. Well, I think that's a great way to to end our interview here. Uh, we're, we're so grateful for for the time, Peter, that you've been able to give to us. Uh, we've got one final question that we ask all our guests, and that is, uh, what are you reading right now? I'm reading Dan Jones' new and very accessible history of the Middle Ages. Uh, I can't remember the title. It's Powers and something or other. Um, and I picked it up at an airport bookshop thinking, oh, this will be, um, be an entertaining read. And it is. It's a very... It's a it's popular history. It's well written. He encompasses a huge amount of material, but really sheds a great deal of light on the uh, on that complex part of history. And he, he ranges across not just Western Europe, um, but looks at, 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 at Asia um, and the Middle East as well. That huge complex of history known as the Middle Ages. So that's very enlightening. So that's a nonfiction book. I'm working through. Um, Olivia Manning's Levant trilogy at the moment. I read the Balkan trilogy a few months ago, and I'm now in the second um, trilogy of that six-part series. That's the fiction that I'm reading. Always love to hear what people are reading. That's wonderful stuff. Peter, I'm going to plug you before you plug you. I think everyone needs to go to the Centre for Independent Studies and check out uh, Peter's work there. You can hear, you can get the, the papers that we've uh, mentioned today uh, and wonderful talks, podcasts. I really do think that Peter and his colleagues there should take out legal proceedings against me and Ricky for stealing uh, guests, ideas, intellectual property. It <laughs> continues. I'm unrepentant and I will continue to do it. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, but uh, how can people find you online uh, and uh, and follow you, Peter? How, how does that happen? Well, as you said, go to the CIS website, which is CIS, Centre for Independent Studies, cis.org.au and find your way around the site. My, I've got, a, as, as all of my colleagues do, I've got my own page within that site, which is easy to find, and our publications, our webinars, our videos are all, and, and, and more, all available at cis.org.au. And I'm very happy that you should be helping to promote the work of the CIS and the work that you do by speaking to some of my esteemed colleagues. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, John and Ricky. Thanks, Peter.